In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 46 of the Feelin' Film podcast. Today, we are discussing Michael Mann's collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis, the frontier epic The Last of the Mohicans. This film was chosen by our listeners via a voting process that was conducted using all of the movies recommended with our Feel This Film hashtag. It was a great experience, and we are in the middle of doing it again right now. Fantastic, for sure, Aaron. And there are still two weeks or so to vote before we choose the second of our listener pick episodes. So listeners, if you want to be a part of that process, just join our Facebook group and look for the link to the Feelin' Film listener pick voting. As for this week, Aaron, I know you have as much love for this film as anybody, so that has me very excited to talk about this with you. Oh, you got that right, brother. I have been excited about this all week long. But you know what? As always, I've also been watching some other films this past week, and I Shocker. would love... I know, right? Who knew? <laughs> um, I would love to mention those uh, before we get started. So, did, you go, did you go see La La Land? I'll bet you did. I, You know what? <laughs> I did not. This is like the first week... No. Um, no more viewings of La La Land, uh, probably until it comes out. Uh, ironically, or not ironically, I hate it when people misuse that word, and I was about to do it, but... Um, Surprisingly, I guess it comes out on the weekend or a couple weekends before my daughter's birthday. And so she's already decided that she will have a La La Land viewing at her birthday party sleepover. And I just, I thought that was awesome. Woot and a half, brother. I love it. So I guess I'll go first because I got a lot more to talk about than you do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me knock out a, a couple of uh, feel and film related things first. First of all, uh, First one is that I had the opportunity to guest host on a new podcast, one I have not ever been on before, and that one is called Screenfish, run by Steve Norton. Uh, he's a Canadian podcaster, so you know we have much loves for the Canadians out there, right, Andrew? Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. yeah. Andrew, Andrew Dice, and Steve Norton. So I, I got to talk about the founder uh, on Screenfish, and, and it was a really good experience. This is a, it's a movie that that makes me very angry. I did not know the story behind the McDonald's brand before I saw this film, so I kind of went into it not really knowing and expecting what I was going to get, and oh man, dude, my, my blood was boiling, and, and a lot of that is because of the great performances, um, Michael Keaton in, in particular. It, I'm almost surprised, I am surprised, honestly, that he, he didn't get an Oscar nomination or more buzz uh, for his performance in this. It's It's phenomenal. As he has been recently, pretty much in everything he's done, and maybe that's that's the problem, or maybe it's just that, uh, as I mentioned on this podcast, maybe no one really wants to go see a movie about a businessman that takes over uh, hardworking Americans' ideas and uh, you know makes it his own and and decides to make billions of dollars off their back. <laughs> maybe the nobody nightmare at its finest. Maybe right? no one wants to see that right now <laughs> uh, because they can see it in the news but yeah yeah we had a good conversation so if you if you're so inclined listeners check out the founder episode with me on screenfish the other feeling film kind of related thing is that this past saturday night so a couple couple nights ago i guess uh before this recording we held our first ever feeling film movie night using a 
an online software platform called Rabbit. Um, what Rabbit does is it's kind of like Twitch if you're a gamer or you're familiar with it, and it allows you to stream anything that is in your browser, and it puts it into basically a chat room. So we were able to all watch The Iron Giant. I rented it on Amazon Prime, and or I guess it, on Amazon, and you know, fire the movie up. Everybody joins in on their, their devices or their computers. And we had, gosh, I think at the height, we had maybe 12 people in there, um, all watching the film and talking about it as we went. It was my first ever viewing. So it was a really cool experience and we had a lot of fun. Uh, everybody that was in, in that room and a part of it thought it was a, a wonderful time and they were really quick to ask when we were going to do it again. So we have scheduled the next feel and film movie night. I believe it's for March the 3rd, which is a Friday night at seven o'clock Pacific time. We decided to bump the time up a little bit for our East coast listeners and uh, participants so that they could, they could partake and um, your, your central time people as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess them too. <laughs> we, we don't care about them as much. Um, <laughs> Hashtag rude. <laughs> Just play <laughs> Uh, but we are going to do Scott Pilgrim versus the world for our next feel and film movie night. So March 3rd, 7 PM Pacific. If you want details on that, the, the event is created on Facebook page. Uh, you can get to that, check it out, uh, find out what you need to do to participate in that. There's no money required. Uh, and then, you know, come, come join us and enjoy it. Uh, For me, Patrick, this week I have watched the two things that stood out to me that I would talk about is one. I watched the Barkley marathons. Um, this is one you talked about on a podcast episode a few, few weeks ago or a few episodes back. And it was about this kind of secret race that takes place in the Appalachians somewhere, I think is the Appalachians, the Smoky Mountains, the Smoky, in Mountains. Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. That's right. Close, um, but no <laughs> actually it is very close. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is one of those like no one knows about the race except by word of mouth. Well, people know about it, but they don't know. You can't enter it except by kind of invitation. It's, it's a very, very secretive kind of thing. And um, I won't go into details because you already did back on whatever episode it was, but my pastor had is a runner and had heard our episode. And so he went and watched this film, this documentary, because you recommended it, which I thought was just the coolest thing ever. And oh, that's very cool. He told me that he really enjoyed it and he thought it was a lot of fun and, and very, very interesting. So I was like, you know what? I, I need to check this out. So I did. And I agree with you. It was fascinating. While I don't necessarily think it is the best made documentary I've ever seen or even up there in the top 10% or whatever, mm. what I love about documentaries is when they capture these obscure <laughs> parts of the world or obscure topics and things that I'm not ever going to know about in my lifetime, unless I watch this documentary. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it's very intriguing because I'm just watching these people and just shaking my head. Like, wow, just wow. I, I mean, the fact that this even exists uh, and that these people go and do it is, is unbelievable. So, yeah, I think you and I talked a little bit about that. And I think I watched a, a documentary recently on the, uh, the burning man, event that happens in uh, Arizona once That's a year. Right. Yeah. And I, I think we, I think we both agreed that those that couldn't make the Barkley marathons end up out there at Burning Man. It's that same kind of just crazy weirdness, uh, celebrate the life that you have kind of, kind of spirit that exists in both of these two, 
uh, events. And I think those both documentaries depict that really well. For sure. So check that one out, uh, listeners, if you're inclined to uh, watch something about a crazy, super hard Iron Man-like race in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Uh, it's on Netflix streaming for free right now if you have Netflix. Uh, the last thing that I did this past week is I revisited the Before Trilogy, which is Richard Linkletter's uh, three-part series of movies, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. Uh, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. So I had never watched these back to back to back uh, because these films come out like nine years apart, just like the story in them is taking place. And so I've watched them, you know, as they were released, but I've never watched them together. And so on almost consecutive nights, there was one, one, one night gap. I watched all three and I, I just, I both, fell in love and got angry all over again with this series. Um, it was, it really reminded me how much I love these movies, uh, for their depiction of real people in real situations and what feels like in at some points, authentic love. Um, and at others, you know, some very, very poor decision-making that also feels very authentic. Um, in the world today that we see this all over the place. And I, I was reminded of why I loved Manchester by the sea, which quick plug, um, we will be having a mini sode on later, uh, this week. We will be putting that out the couple days before the Oscars so that that's out there for listeners. But it reminds me of that film because it's really just such a realistic depiction of what people go through. It's not overly dramatized. And because of that, it's easy to relate to. And when you relate to something, your emotions just can get taken on a, on a whirlwind, you know, ride. So that's what this movie series does for me, especially because of my own personal history. You know, I connect to it in certain ways and it was great. Um, never, never doubt that these are three, five star movies. I, I love them all. I consider this probably my second favorite trilogy of all time. And it was really worth watching them consecutively like that. And I highly recommend that for anyone out there that is uh, interested in revisiting these movies. I definitely want to. I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago that the um, the movie Bef- Before You Go or Before We Leave or something, uh, it, it made me think about the Linkletter trilogy. And uh, at some point, I want to sit down and and watch those. My wife has actually seen the first one. So that's surprising. I didn't know that she had been familiar with one of those three. So it'll be interesting to see if she wants to go through those with me as well. Well, that would be awesome. Um, you know, it's, they're not very long. So that's one of the, the cool things about them. I think one's an hour, 40 minutes, one's an hour, 20 minutes. The other one's like an hour and 45 minutes. So, so it's not, it's not like knocking out the Lord of the Rings extended right. editions or anything like <laughs> exactly. You can watch all three in the time that you can watch the fellowship of the ring. Or the extras or the extras in one of the discs. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely, I don't agree with everything that I see on screen as far as what I necessarily would approve or disapprove of actions. And I don't think that that's the point. I don't think the movie is preaching to us, trying to tell us this is how something should be. And that's what I appreciate about it is it's just saying, look, this is what really happens in life. And this is, this is what people do. And this is how people would react. And some part of it is, is beautiful. And part of it is just, man, mess the heck up, you know? (laughs) 
But what about you? Did you get around to watching anything this week? I did. I actually got the chance to see a couple of things. Um, one that um, I wanted to talk briefly on. There's a, a TV series that, you know, it's funny. I don't like to, when we watch television shows at our house, we keep them DVR'd so we can skip through commercials. And every once in a while, we'll, as we're thumbing through the commercials, um, I'll either see something visually like a fun commercial that I'm like, oh, I heard about this one and I want to rewind it. Or I'll, if any of you guys have DVRs, which I think most people do, you kind of either go too far or you don't go far enough. And you, uh, I end up catching a, a new series on CBS called Doubt. Uh, what attracted me to this was that it stars uh, Catherine Heigl and Dulé Hill. Catherine Heigl, I thought, uh, I love her as an actress. I think she's, she's a lot of fun. I saw her in, uh, in New Year's Eve, <laughs> of all things. I, I thought she was just very cute in that. But Dulé Hill of, uh, of West Wing fame was another of the of the cast members that caught my eye and it's a it's a it's a drama uh, a courtroom drama kind of it centers around this law firm and Katherine Heigl as a, as a lawyer and it's about her relationships with uh, her mom and with clients and how her relationship with her mom affects how she uh, how she lawyers and the, the synopsis is basically, it goes like this, a successful defense lawyer at a boutique firm can, uh, becomes romantically involved with the client who may or may not be guilty of a brutal crime. So it's the, the pilot episode wasn't really about that per se. I don't know why they used that as its synopsis. But the, the cast drew me in, and I was really impressed with the pilot episode. It's hanging out at like a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's gotten like a 5.9 on the meta scale. I, I don't think it's going to last. I mean, maybe they'll burn off their 12 or 13 episodes. It's a mid-season series. Uh, I'm going to keep checking it out until it can't get canceled or or whatnot. I, I, I enjoyed the first episode. I think I'm going to uh, enjoy the subsequent ones for the, for the cast alone. The writing's really well done. I found myself very intrigued at some of the storylines that were being developed, and uh, the dialogue in it is uh, is really good as well. So doubt on CBS if you get a chance to check out the pilot do that it's it's a it's a it's a good one uh, the other thing I didn't get a chance to actually put this in our notes I'm sorry Aaron I just I lost track of time but uh, Friday night my wife and I got a chance to do something very rare and that's have a date night and go to a movie and I wanted to kind of talk briefly about this really interesting film that we saw um, I don't know if you've heard of it it's uh, called La La Land you didn't tell I you're done you're done. Gosh, you're done. I, you seriously I, didn't tell me this. I, I guess you've heard of this. Movie. Oh my gosh! I this was <laughs> listeners. This was intentional. Oh my goodness! I, I, I must have forgotten to put that in the notes. I'm Forgot sorry. to put that in the notes. We've talked all days, every day. Wow. Yes, we uh, we we caught a we caught a, a Friday night feature. It was a it was a last minute deal. We weren't actually going to go to a movie, and then some things happened where we uh, we decided to kind of truncate our time we decided let's just do dinner and go to a movie and she said well what about la la land and i said you know what i've heard pretty good things about that movie and um i gotta tell you man well maybe i shouldn't tell you i don't know really (laughs) no man it was it was fantastic i i I, honestly the um the the opening was pretty fantastic but i was a little i was a little kind of 
off center and balanced because I was like, okay, I, I know it's a musical, but what am I getting myself into? And I think by the time we got to probably 30 minutes into it, um, there was, I guess the first full scene with, um, well, basically the scene that we get from the, from the poster art, that's when I was really sold on it. And from there on, I was just absolutely in love with it. I love the music. I love the choreography. I love the story. Um, you know, this obviously makes me regret not being able to cover this with you on the episode that, that we did, but I'm excited about going back and listening to that so I can, you know, basically agree with everything you say, you know, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be nice to hear that, but I really had a good time with it, man. I, I thought that it's, it's a refreshing movie. It's something that is not conventional to, to what we're normally used to. In fact, it came at a great time because you know, all these movies that I have in my queue that I want to watch are depressing. I mean, I just love good dramas and I have no, I make no apologies for that, but I find myself going, I need something that's going to be kind of light. And so I'm grateful for the recommendation for how to train your dragon a few weeks ago. That was very much a fun thing. And, uh, of course I followed that up with hell or high water. I don't know why I didn't do them in reverse. That was just a bad decision on my part, but seeing this and seeing it in the theater, it just, uh, it was so mesmerizing, so refreshing. And, you know, I agree with Ryan Gosling that jazz is a great combination of both conflict and compromise. And uh, there's there's just something magical about that. I completely agree. So thank you for helping me fall in love with jazz again, Ryan. And yes, you can have chemistry with a brick wall. I mean, that's just how good you are. Right. If we you, talked about you, that. Yeah. If Hugh Jackman were not my bromance, you would be a, a very close second. So... I fully admit that, and uh, you can put a stamp on that. So, All the Land has officially been viewed by me. So now we can have good conversations on or off the air, whatever you want to do. Hundred <laughs> percent endorsed by the Feeling Film Podcast. I love it. Put stamp on it. That's great. I am so happy, and I'm so <laughs> still shocked, and just I can't <laughs> believe you did this to me. But um, man, I, I I'm glad you enjoyed it and and really liked it because we would have had problem if you didn't, but um, <laughs> the no, show I, may not have gone on if we had a <laughs> the differences. But uh, I, you know, I, I was pretty certain that you would, you would love it for the same reasons I did that even beyond, you know, yeah. any, any kind of nitpicks that you may have with it. And I'm sure you have some, just like I do folks. I, I actually don't love every single detail of every single frame of this film. Okay. I don't, don't believe his lies. Don't, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> don't believe his lies. Maybe I do actually. But the point is, <laughs> There's sometimes when something just speaks to you in a way that that is unique and special at a moment in your life, then it just it's a connection. It's what we exist to talk about movies. It's it's the thing that we love about what film can do for us is taking us to that place, whether it's emotionally or mentally or, you know, psychologically and that's just what it is. Magical. I mean, it it seems overused because it's in the media so much now with all of the Oscar noms and all of the success and and hype but it is it's magical that's the feeling you get when you watch it and for sure that's great i'm I'm pumped to hear you tell me how you're addicted to the soundtrack and you can't stop listening to it now because <laughs> that's what's happened to everybody buddy we'll have to talk connecting points at some point yes yes we will maybe we'll do one of our maybe we'll drop a special episode on that somewhere <laughs> somewhere somewhere unique um okay well that's awesome. And that sets us off on a great path for the rest of this podcast. So with that, I think we should just go ahead and move on in to our main review, which is Last of the Mohicans. Now, we are going to spoil this film. 
it's very, very old. So hopefully most of you have watched it. I, I say it's very, very old. It's like mid nineties. That feels <laughs> like it's very, very old to me at this point, but well, it's an old movie. Okay. Just yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we're going to spoil this, this film. So if you haven't seen it, you know, probably should go, go watch it. Maybe you've read the book though. And which case, who knows? You can make your own. That's a heck of a that'd be a heck of a spoiler at that point. Yeah, <laughs> it was published in 1920. So <laughs> make your own choices, folks. But right. Um, so Patrick, I'm going to let you start because I honestly don't know what your history with this film is. This is not one we've we've had a lot of time to to discuss ahead of time. Um, I know my own, obviously, but <laughs> and and you know some of mine. So take <laughs> us off, man. What? what is your history with last of the Mohicans and what was this viewing like for you? If it was a, a repeat viewing? Well, it was a repeat viewing. I had seen it when I was younger and I remember specifically the first time I watched this going into it thinking, eh, I'm not really interested in this, but people are talking about it. It's apparently a good movie. And you know, any, any poster that has a guy running at you with long hair looks really intimidating, especially if he's got like a big giant stick or something. And I thought this looks like something worth checking out. Uh, It's gotten a lot of good, you know, quote press, you know, at the time. And I remember going, okay, this is kind of slow. Okay. There's a lot of talking. Okay. There's a lot of guys in, you know, crazy hairdos, you know, are we going to talk about the constitution at some point? And then, you know, something happens, there's an attack and I'm like, whoa, that I didn't expect that. And then things got, they just really picked up. And by the end of the movie, I remember thinking, whoa, (laughs) what did I just see? That was great. (laughs) And so that was my, my memory of it coming in. So I sat down and watched this uh, with my wife. And honestly, I had the exact same reaction because it had been so long since I'd heard about it. This is a, you know, the same kind of circumstance existed where I'd heard good things about it. This was a pick by our listeners and I was excited to check it out. And sure enough, I had those same kinds of responses. I was like, whoa, this is kind of slow. Whoa, there's a lot of talking. In fact, because we watched this, you know, later in the evening when my, when my son was asleep, we had to turn on the subtitles because I had to catch everything. And, and of course there was that one pivotal scene that I remember from the first time saying, Ah, now I remember this. And the rest of the movie just really picked up. And by the time the credits rolled, I was thinking the exact same thing. Fantastic. Where have you been all my life? This is just a great film. And so I, I walked away both times having the same response, which is, which is interesting because when you talk film, you talk subjectivity and you think, well, what would happen on a revisit? And I didn't expect that. I didn't expect the same kind of reaction. Usually expect to either move forward by loving it more or liking it more, or maybe to digress a little bit. Like, eh, that wasn't really what I thought it was the first time I saw it. And so I was—I don't know if I'm supposed to be happy about that. I feel like I am. That was because I walked away feeling very happy about my uh, my my viewing of it. And uh, it—I think watching it for the purposes of this this episode of course, was looking for a lot of things. I was looking for things to to talk about. So that made it a little bit more enjoyable for me. And uh, it made it more exciting to want to talk about. Well, good. I'm glad that you liked it and didn't hate it upon your your second viewing. I, I can understand how you would have a similar reaction if you haven't watched something in 20 years. 
you know, because it's almost like it's that for, it's almost like you don't remember the details of it. So you're, you're experiencing them all again, all over mm-hmm. again. Um, mine was a little different. So my history with this film is pretty strong. I would have at one time in my teens told you that last of the Mohicans is my favorite film of all time. Uh, this was a movie that I watched repeatedly. My dad introduced me to it and it was kind of one of our man movies. And I just fell in love with the story and the way that it's told. Um, it felt very unique to me at the time. Uh, we didn't, didn't have this kind of blend of action and romance done in, in such a way as this. Um, usually it was more dramatic uh, either either more dramatic from the romance standpoint or you know way heavier on the action and this seemed like to be kind of a very intimate balance of the two so i really enjoyed it and and i used to listen to the soundtrack in my car just on repeat just over and over and over i, I that theme is still one of my favorite pieces of music of all time and so over the years I didn't revisit this movie and I'd remake my top 10 list, my top 20 list. And it it just kind of, you know, got pushed down more and more and more because I wasn't watching it and I I wasn't remembering it in the way that um, would stand up against something I had just seen that blew me away. And so when I watched this again, it took me all of about, I don't know, a minute <laughs> to be fully engrossed all over again. <laughs> honest, honest to goodness, man, the moment that the score starts, I'm hooked. I'm there. And it was a, a very emotional reviewing for me. Um, it's, I, I would tell you that this movie is, is definitely in my top 10. It, it has to be there. It, it belongs there. And the reason is because I feel like it's such a greatly made film, but also because of its emotional impact on me um, both historically. And then now 20 years later coming back to it, Mm -hmm. this was also my first introduction to Daniel day Lewis. Uh, I don't know what he had done before this. I I, I would, I think that my left foot was before this, but I can't remember. I could be mistaken, Um, but it was my introduction to him. And that's become, you know, just an awesome career to follow and watch as he, he becomes one of the greatest actors of our generation. Mm-hmm, so that's for sure. So yeah. Um, like you, I thought that there's so much to discuss in this, uh, from a, a conversational standpoint, a, a deeper level. Um, the characters mm-hmm. are all very rich and the action is superb. So it's just, it's such a great, great film. Mm-hmm, and absolutely I'm, is. I'm pumped that people chose it. Yeah, I am too. And I, I was doing some research about it and, and thinking about how one of the things that kind of disconnected me from it, um, I think the first time around and then less so this time around, was that it's it's a period piece, but it's a period piece that was produced in you know, in the nineties. And I'm not gonna diss the nineties. The nineties had some great films, this being one of them, obviously. But I was doing some research and I remember there were two movies that I really enjoyed uh, around that time. Glory and, mm-hmm. and Gettysburg, both driven by both period pieces, both about the Civil War, obviously, but both driven by you know, pretty 
uh, pretty good casting and both driven by really great soundtracks. And I feel like this sits with those as far as the quality of that film and that it feels it's a period piece that feels like it was produced in that time period, but it still stands up as a great film because of those elements that were, that were brought into it. And I think that's why, uh, why I, why I picked it the first time and why I enjoyed it overall both times is that in the same way that I liked glory in the same way that I liked Gettysburg, you, you, you take a, an event that you don't know a lot about and you said it really well. It's, it's a story not about necessarily battles per se. I mean, glory maybe, but Gettysburg, not so much. It's really about the story of people and the story of their relationships with each other and the battles that take place and the, these, the action pieces that they accent this other kind of romantic story. And I don't mean just love romance. I mean, just like the, the romantic stories themselves overall. Um, and I think that's why I gravitated towards it and why I ended up liking it as much as I did. Very valid reasons. Well, I'm going to jump into the, the big theme that I see all throughout this film. And, and what I feel like it's based on so that we can kind of unpack this a little bit uh, and talk through it. And that is this idea of duty to family versus duty to society or in, in other words, family or country first. Mm, and I feel like yeah. this is such a relevant talking point for where America is at this time in its history. Um, as as tensions are high and and people are starting to really lash out um, and protest things and speak out in ways that we haven't seen at least in my lifetime and i think this question comes up a lot you know it, what is my duty to my nation and and at what point does that duty end or when do i get to then make my own choice as to what is important to me right. um and specifically with this question, it comes up, you know, the way I think of it is this. If the country becomes too dangerous, is that worse for the family? Mm-hmm. And does that make it worth leaving for fight? And so th- the first time that this really is brought up in a big way uh, is when we have the English come through the colony and ask for volunteers and they say you know listen you guys need to come with us you need to i guess they're not really technically asking for volunteers they're pretty much saying you need to come you need to come be part of this militia Mm -hmm. and the townsfolk speak up and they're like hey what about our homes and so you know we have to take this in context these are these are people who are immigrants who have come here they have nothing their their life is all about earning their living i mean they don't they don't have things the way that we have things. They exist to work the land that they have. They get a piece of right. land and then they have to build on it and then they have to go find their food and then they have to mm-hmm. you know make it make it work. And they have to protect their family. That goes along with it. And there's there's dangers. There's a war going on with the French. And then there's various Indian tribes, some of which are friendly and some of which, as we see, not so much. Right. Um and so these guys rightfully push back and say, well, what about this? What about who's going to protect our families? And so, of course, in diplomatic fashion, good old English, uh, <laughs> say, oh, well, we'll let you come back and do that. 
don't worry. You know, if, if things get bad, we'll let you come back and defend your family. To which any viewer of this film is probably going, oh, no. Like, you know mm-hmm. that's not going to be what happens. Right. Um, and so that's really the first time that we, we get a chance to see this. And I guess I'd, I'd ask you what you think of that and where you stand. What What would you do? What would Patrick do? <laughs> WWPD. Yep. Always the question. Um, gosh, there's there's a lot of tension set up in that scene because if you leave to go fight for your country at the expense of your family with no guarantee that what you come back to is still going to be there, is it worth going out to fight in the first place? And it's this – would that be a catch-22? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I might be misusing that literary device. But I – I think that it would be incredibly difficult for me to leave all that I've built because you mentioned it perfect. You, you said it perfectly that it wasn't like these guys had, you know, nine to five jobs that they were going on vacation or they were taking extended leaves of absences. I mean, they built with their hands the homes that they lived in. They hunted and farmed food that they had to eat. This wasn't like a hobby or a, you know, a thing that you did in retirement. And so to leave that, it wasn't just about, Oh, got to make sure that I, you know, lock the doors. No, this was about saying, I'm probably not coming back or what's the guarantee that my home's still going to be here when I get back at the same time, they're living in a country that if they're not loyal to, Who's to say that the country itself isn't going to turn its back on them when, quote, peacetime comes around? And as someone who has a family, it would be incredibly difficult for me to leave. But it would be a, I think it would be a serious jump of trust for me to be able to say, you know what? I trust the people that are leading this and that they have the country's best interest at heart. And as a result the people that live here. So, ah, gosh, <laughs> I don't want to give a definitive answer, but I'm leaning more towards going because I feel like I'd have a better shot at fighting for my country and have more of those advantages at the end, even though I'm risking what's happening, you know, what could happen back at home. You know, what yeah. about you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so tough because, and that, and I think that's what makes the movie great or mm-hmm. what makes this part of the film great. And the, the, the tackling of this question because it's not simple. It's not easy. Um, you know, we just got done with dealing with these moral gray areas all the time in our Nolan rewatch month. Um, because that's what all his films have. And it's very similar to this, you know, it's, there's a reason to go and there's a reason to stay. Yeah. And I guess my, my leaning is toward my family first. My family comes before my country, but then I can't help but go, well, if every single person decided that my family is more important than my country, there would be no country because right. it would never happen. Right. And so mm-hmm. without those sacrifices, it, it doesn't work either. And it, it's just this, this awful, awful situation um, that they're put in. I, what I do love is that the Mohicans later actually stay and the reason so when they when the the militia is released 
to or when not when they're released <laughs> when uh, <laughs> Hawkeye helps them escape and go back home. Um, I believe it's his his dad maybe that asks him. He says, "Well, why didn't you go with him?" And he says, "Because we've given our word to our English fathers." Mm-hmm. And I was just like, "Man, <laughs> you want to talk about honor?" Yeah. You know, that's a man who is choosing to have integrity and keep his word despite the immoral actions of the English that has <laughs> the, just happened. Right. But the, but the ironic thing is that he then gets in trouble for it. You know, he's, he's let these guys escape, even though his intentions were completely in support of the English and yeah. that he's the one. And of course it leads into that great sequence of events that happens just after that of, um, of, of Cora coming in and just defending him to no end. Uh, and then kind of, you know, bleeding into their relationship blossoming. But it's so, if I'm, I might be misusing ironic too. This is the night where I misuse literary words. Uh, but you know, the, the circumstance where he's, he's doing both. He's both, he's both honoring his English brethren by disobeying them. <laughs> and that's such a weird thing to think about, you know? Yeah. No, it really is. And it, and it gives his character so much, it builds his character. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I love about this film is that it does so much without words. There is not a lot of exposition going on in this movie. People mm-hmm. don't just stop and sit around and talk about the situation. We get, we we learn to, or we, we learn about the situation and we, we come to understand it by the, the things that are taking place by the conversations yeah. that we have between characters versus someone just trying to explain it to you. Um, and I, I really enjoy that. I don't, I don't like overly expository films, but I really think that there's so much nuance in all the characters when it comes to this whole duty to family versus duty to society bit. Mm-hmm. Everyone has humanized moments um, and everybody has reasons for their actions. They're, they're not just one note. Um, Winthrop at one point, I mean, he, like I said, he understands early and that's the, that's the colony, the colony guy. <laughs> that's the colonist. <laughs> uh, and he understands early that England is still the sovereign. Like that he says that he's like, I understand, you know, you are still our sovereign, um, but we have to defend our homes. And mm-hmm. then with the Indians, you know, regardless of how hard they try to stay out of the way and just go on living their lives, it seems like they just keep getting drawn into this conflict yeah. and, and they're just forced to try and survive. And they're trying to keep their lines alive. They're trying to protect their family. I mean, that's these are the last of the Mohicans. This is it. These three guys, they're trying to protect and keep their family alive, but yet they're doing that very thing. They're, in essence, joining a militia. They're taking up arms to help others. They're, yeah. they're, they're putting themselves at risk. Um, and, gosh, I just I love how it brings everybody together. I do too. And you mentioned that there's no one note characters in here. This is something that, you know, I don't know how, I don't have an extensive understanding of the nineties films, but I think this is a rare thing just in films in general that you have a good dozen characters that all have arcs. They all have purpose. And as you mentioned before, they all have moments of what I believe is real sincerity moments where we connect with them. Um, Magua's, is one of these characters that I think does this very much uh, a subtle way. 
you know, by the by the middle of the well, I guess by the third part, by the first third of the film, we sort of kind of established our, you know, quote good guys and bad guys, based on the the story thus far, and then we're sort of thrown into um, that first moment where Mugwa and his uh, Huron brethren just you know attack this British um, brigade or, or cavalry or, or I forget what they're called, and. And, and and so but at that point we're like okay we know who the bad guy is but then as the story progresses he we find out why he is the way he is and we sort of kind of validate his actions we validate his motives because we connect with that we connect with the fact that he's getting vengeance his family you know was pretty much wiped out and and now the you know the reveal of him getting vengeance on somebody else kind of a you know eye for eye type thing we in some ways you know side with him um i didn't completely because you know <laughs> i just i can't help but picture him throwing tomahawks at people's heads and you know you know cutting guys hearts out you know that's just you know when you have that in your head you can't really completely be a guy's friend you know but for for him as a character, I, I look at that and I go, there's a guy who slowly makes you question whether or not he really is a good or a bad bad guy. And I think that's purposeful. I think it's purposeful to be able to say, look, why why is he doing this? He's not just the guy who um who Hawkeye's going after, you know, or who Simmons is going after. It's he has a reason for doing what he's doing. And the fact that it's revealed slowly and at a later time really makes his character matter more as an audience. Oh, it totally does. I mean, it's Magua is one of the best characters of the nineties for me. I just, I mean, it starts with the opening sequence you're talking about there, uh, or opening, I guess, fight sequence of Mm -hmm. sorts, but I, I still can't get over it. I mean, I just, I get goosebumps when I'm seeing them walking through the forest and he turns around and starts walking the opposite way. And I know what's coming. And I mean, this is when, like you said, you realize not only is he probably a bad guy, but it just how much of a, uh, <laughs> just, uh, he is a, he's bad to the bone, man. He is a, <laughs> I'm trying to think of clean words to use. Um, yeah, we don't want to put <laughs> on this episode, right? <laughs> but he is words that yeah, I don't really want to say right now. But he is awesome, like as far as like hardcore kind of character. Um, and you just see him start walking backwards, and you you know, Duncan kind of gets this quizzical look on his face, like, "Huh, where's he go- going?" And in in this line of hundreds of soldiers, Magua just pulls out a hatchet and just cracks somebody on the head. Just I mean, like, what? dude, Where's that, that takes that takes serious guts to do that. Now, mm-hmm. yeah, he's got an ambush planned, and clearly that's the cue because right after that we see just musket fire just blowing out of the the, the shadows and the forest. And I mean, it, it's incredible. The scenes here are amazing, um, the way it's filmed. But yeah, we get we get this idea right away of okay, now we know who our villain is, right? And as things go on, we start to see, well, maybe England's the villain, the way that they're treating people, or maybe it's the French or heck, nobody's really great in this. But you talked about how, you know, later we learn about Mago's family and, and how they were murdered. And that has influenced where he's at now. 
and how he has embraced this idea of wanting to be like the French because clearly the French can take what they want and ensure their own survival. And so he's afraid he wants to make others afraid so that his people can flourish. And, and Hawkeye even calls it out. He says, he says, Magua has the sickness of greed, but you know, it's kind of all with this underlying desire to see his people survive. Like he just wants to protect his family. Um, and he's going about it in a way that is never going to be validated. It's just not. So, right. I mean, yes, he's a bad guy, <laughs> but, um, the fact that he has, reasons that we can understand is important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not out there trying to just, you know, take what he can just to, to revel in it. It's all about making his nation strong enough that they can get through this whole ordeal. Yeah. He's not just trying to make the world, you know, he just didn't want to watch the world burn. He really has purpose. It's evil purpose, but it's still purpose. And I think that makes him more of a round character. And and I think what elevates him, as you mentioned, to one of the better villains of the 90s in that he has complexity to him, which I think we see in, in Nolan's movies, you know, going back to that, if we're talking about ambiguity and this, you know, questioning stuff, that's what his characters do as well. They have his villains or his bad guys aren't necessarily bad. They turn good or, you know, I just, I love, I, I love stories that do that because they add value to the story overall because the story itself is one that if I'm, if I'm being honest, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily a, it, 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 the, the story moves the bigger things along, you know? And I think that it, it's not a very compelling story. You know, guys are taking these, these women to a fort and they, you know, they, the character the character development I think leads to what becomes the better half of the movie, which is the back half, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, that sometimes it's okay to have a story that's not, you know, you know, the plot point being very exciting if the character development really adds to it. And I think that's what happened here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, 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 you know, Magua's most emotional moments all come at the end. Yeah. I mean, he has the one really, really impactful scene with the French when the French have turned on their treaty. And I, and I love this scene, by the way. I love how the, the French commander um, specifically tells Magua, he's like, well, I cannot break the treaty. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do anything about it. And Magua's like, no, I got this. I will spill I their yeah. seed on the ground and I will eat their heart and they got will it. die. Right. <laughs> and I'm just like, I remember just uh, – just, even watching it now as an adult, just being like, mm-hmm, okay, like I get it. Like I'm afraid of you, you know? Yeah. And Oh, and, and the scalping scenes in this just, I mean, Ugh. can you imagine how brutal that is? And there's one moment where I don't know if it's Magua or another, Indian, I think it's Magua where he just walks up and just cuts this dude's heart out while he's alive and oh, raises yeah. it. I'm just like, that is brutality at its most honest, honestly, for like what this time was like. Right. Uh, but gosh, it's crazy. Anyway, w- where I was going with that is <laughs> where were you going with that? A million, a million directions. But but that whole that was Magua's big moment in the middle of the film. We have this moment in the beginning where we we start off with the ambush. Then we have that moment in the middle where he makes that speech, and then at the end, for me, his 
it's such a subtle thing, but after he kills Uncas, um, and Alice has stepped up to the side of the cliff and she's about to kill herself, he just very, very subtly, very simply, just he lowers the knife mm-hmm. and he tilts his hand up and he kind of beckons her with his fingers, like, come. He's like, like, like I'm putting the knife down. I'm not going to hurt you. Come. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course she kills herself. But like that moment of humanity and of care and concern from Magua shows you that he's not completely fully this evil villain that we might have expected. He's not fully that. But notice what happens afterwards. After she falls to her death, he just walks on. Oh, yeah. He's no, like, no. Okay, it, that's go. important, too, is that he immediately yeah. just he's like it's kind of like he shrugs he like, well, that, that sucks. Like, OK. Yeah. But yeah, I, but it's... I think he's so quick to understand in in that in that time like you don't have time to in that day and age you don't have time to worry about that it's just okay well that happened I, you know I, I tried I didn't want to hurt her but she took she made a choice and now I'm gonna move forward um so yeah I I love Magua uh, as far as the complexity of his character um so. The other one I really want to talk about too is Nathaniel, Daniel Day Lewis's character, Hawkeye. Right. right. Our star of the show, star of the story. Um, the one who, until you get to the end of this movie, you might actually assume is the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. And what it's about. <laughs> right. We'll get there later. But a couple things I want to mention before we get into his character in the film. As most of you know, listeners, Daniel Day Lewis has won multiple Oscars for Best Actor. Um, he's, he's truly one of the most accomplished um, actors of the generation, and he fits that mold of a character act of a was it method actor? What's the word uh, when you go all in on learning Is it method or character? I think it's I method remember. actor. Method actor, um, right? So, what he did to prepare for this film is nuts, man. He, I was reading this this interview about it he learned to live as, as a survivalist. And so he spent his days at time fully alone in the Alabama wilderness. He learned how to track hunt and skin animals for food. He ate only the things he killed by the end of this experience. He could accurately throw a tomahawk, build a canoe and hit just about anything with his trusty flint rock flint lock rifle, which is the same one that never left his side. Even at Christmas dinner. Um, and then Michael Mann told, told time the same thing. He said, if he didn't shoot it, he didn't eat it. Dude, you want to talk about commitment to your character and getting, getting in the head of what you're going to be playing. That is unreal. It is unreal. And, you know, knowing what we know about him now, we go, well, yeah, that's Daniel Day Lewis. But at the time I didn't know any actors that did that. You know, I thought Daniel Day Lewis just grew his hair out and learned to, carry around a really, really, really long rifle. I mean, really, this thing was like a, I don't know, like a, like a flagpole. It was so long, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know what to think about that from an acting point of view. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, when you're all into your role, that's awesome because it definitely plays itself out on screen at the same time. I'm thinking, what does that do to your psyche after filming? You know, what does that do to you? Obviously, it has not changed his ability to act or 
to transfer into, you know, a Blinken <laughs> several years later. But it's it's so from from a from a creative standpoint, I look at that and I go, there's a guy that's not just passionate about his job, but he cares about every character that he plays. I would hope whether he plays a lead acting position or whether he plays a supporting acting position or whether he plays an extra or you know a guy that doesn't get top billing he goes all in with every role that he plays because he cares about the craft he cares about the art and he cares about not just being accurate but being genuine Mm -hmm. and i think that we get that with him there's a scene i absolutely loved with him and cora it's just after they they come up on the I guess it's the the plantation house that's gotten uh, burned, and you see, like, I think it's a couple that 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 we see that they're killed. And she says, "We need to give them a proper Christian burial." He oh, goes, yeah. "No," and we go, "No." And you're thinking, "Dude, why are you being a jerk?" You know. <laughs> what we find out later in the next scene is when they're kind of waiting for the Huron to show up. You know, he mentions earlier in that previous scene, he said. Um, basically that, you know, I knew who they were, you know, they weren't, they're not strangers to me. And what we find out is that the reason that he left them there to die or to not be buried is so that they wouldn't be tracked. He was, he was taking care Mm -hmm. of the people that he was with. And of course that, that starts this great conversation between him and Cora and she starts seeing kind of a, a better picture of who he is. But I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't happen with just any actor, and I think that that tells me that he cares about he cares about Nathaniel. He cares about the portrayal of that guy, and uh, it says it says a ton about him as an actor and about the character himself. Yeah, it really does. And you know, like you're saying, that acting where you commit like that can be difficult. I mean, look at what it did to Heath Ledger. You know, essentially, most people would believe that it was that kind of immersion into the role of the Joker that ended up, you know, combining with his already um, pre-existing depression that ended up, you know, causing him to take his life or, or end up, you know, dying of a drink overdrug, yeah, drug overdose. So it's, it's amazing, but it is kind of scary at the same time. Um, as a viewer, I love it. <laughs> you know, I want, I want yeah. all, I want everybody to do this. I want every, like you said, every supporting actor down to, you know, the waitress in the, the diner to give me this kind of authentic performance. Um, and it's just not going to happen, but it, that's what makes it so special when it does. So as for his character, uh, there's, he's so many things. I see Nathaniel as unabashedly honest and romantic. Um, he just is, he's very witty. There's one of the, there's so many great lines. He doesn't talk a lot in this movie. There's not, like I said, there's not a lot of exposition, but when he speaks, so many great sarcastic remarks come out of his, out of his mouth. <laughs> uh, early, early in the movie. There's, there's one where major Hayward says, there's a war on, how is it you are heading West? And he just looks at him and he says, well, we face <laughs> to the North and real subtle, like turn left, turn left. right? <laughs> and it's just like, Oh my goodness. Um, and then, you know, the moment where he's he's talking to him again later and he just says, someday I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. <laughs> and you just you get this <laughs> sense of like, look, this is not a guy that you want to make mad. But then because he's so he's so intent on 
helping others. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, these are a group of people who are the last of their, their line. And yet they are constantly risking themselves, putting themselves in the middle of this fight that they don't have to do. They don't have to be there. They don't owe this to anybody, but because they feel like it's their duty is just humans. Um, he says at one point, he really, this was the line that to me really gets his character nailed. And he says, if that's justice, and he's talking about um, the way that the French or the English are, are going to handle uh, not letting the colonists go back and defend their families. He says, if that's justice, then the sooner the French guns blow the English doors off, the better we'll be for it. <laughs> and that line just sticks with me, man, because it really sums him up and, and his, his devotion to honor Mm-hmm. And again, to that duty at this, this, he's saying this line at the same time as he's, like you said, he's there because he has honored what he told them he would do. And all he's right. asking is that they do the same. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's an amazing performance. Um, he's, he's such a great character. Um, the, the relationships between him and his brother and his dad, I think are incredibly well done. Um, in, a, in a lesser movie, they would be overly dramatic. We would have a lot more time with these characters stopping to have a conversation together and to show you that dad and son are really connecting. But we don't we don't get that. We get that instead in action, in the way that mm-hmm. they run through the forest together and hunt together, in the way that in the, in the way that toward the end of the film, without even a hesitation. Duncan and his dad, Chingachuk, uh, know exactly what each other is thinking, and his dad just tosses him a rifle when he needs it. Mm-hmm. Without, there's no, there's no thought, there's no, there's no conversation that happens. It's just like we are of one mind. That's that's how mm-hmm. I see this family, and so I love that portrayal, especially as it's contrasted against uh, yeah. what we see from the French, the English, and the the Huron. Well, and and this might be stretching it a little bit but we we know that obviously nathaniel is adopted that he's not a pure mohican uh not only by his you know his look but also by the fact that he has a nice american accent uh in which he i think he he said he in the in the story it said he he learned it um by going to school but anyway i think that there's some interesting things here about his adoption and about um not necessarily by nature learning things like hunting uh or you know he he wasn't born to do these things i mean we don't know a lot about his history i don't think i don't think we know a lot about his um about his backstory but what i see is that the fact that he is adopted and you mentioned this this connection that he has with these two other people we don't question that adoption at all during the movie i mean we think of him as one of these three mohicans we're just introduced to them and because of that, in particularly the, that opening sequence with them hunting, you know, hunting the um, the beast. I can't remember if it's a bear or if it's a I forget what it is. But anyway, you see them all three of them are tracking him, and then they shoot him, and then you see his dad saying a prayer like, you know, we're we're thankful for you, and and um, you know, we we look at these three individuals, and we don't see this guy stand out as like, hey, one of these things is not like the other. And it may be because his clothing is similar. It may be because he has long hair. But I think it's because of the fact that we want to get that 
we're through the through the cinematography and through the director and 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 all and all that we want to get the sense that these guys are a family that they are connected in some way and it doesn't have to be by blood and i think that's what motivates him to see honor across all lines not just about british or french or whatever but about honoring people and honoring those that he's been put in charge of they don't have to be his people they don't have to be because he's not his people i mean he is for all intents and purposes a mohican but he's not and i think in 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 some kind of abstract way that adoption extends to him adopting the compassion for other people you know for the british and for you know for those two for the two women and you know eventually that leads to a a romance um that is again very believable <laughs> i mean very much a natural romance that builds and i think that elevates the complexity of his character and there's a lot of thought that goes into writing his character i mean there's a reason there are multiple reasons why he is written as being adopted and not one of the last three particularly the the last scene that really has that heavy kind of weight to it but so many other things throughout the film that 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 adoption story um, amplifies yeah it does and you know you were just mentioning the romance and it got me thinking i'm just i immediately i'm like stay alive in my head and i just like <laughs> oh my gosh i'm gonna cry um but there's there's one of my favorite moments of the romance in this movie is again subtlety less words more visual uh cue visual acting um, it's he just Cora asks him she says he's looking at her and she says what are you looking at sir and he just says I'm looking at you miss and it's like I mean there's so much said in that sentence that is beyond I'm looking at you miss um, his facial expressions and just the simplicity of the way the romance is handled uh, obviously leading up to the big moment of the you know stay alive I will find you scene which I will is, find you is so I will memorable. find you um, no, he's not going to find her and kill her. Uh, that's not his goal. Um, it's, it's, it's really well done. A couple of the things about uh, a couple scenes that I really love with Nathaniel and Hawkeye that will tie us into a good segue about cinematography, but is there's two moments that I love probably more than any other. One of them is the opening scene where, or the opening fight against Magua Magua's ambush has taken place. They Mohicans rush in to save the day. Magua pulls out the rifle and is about to shoot Hawkeye. And he, right as he fires, Hawkeye lines him up, drops to a knee to avoid the shot. And then there is this amazing hazy cloud where Magua was standing and he's gone like a shit yeah. in the shadow. Just, he's disappeared. Um, but the way that the camera works in these scenes there's so many times where the camera faces where the rifle is pointing at the camera or the camera spins around to have the rifle shot go off directly at the audience. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. it is intense and it, and it lends an intensity to the film that wouldn't be there without that style of filmmaking. Yeah, for sure. The, I think there's, there's a, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, no, go ahead. If you got something on that. No, I was just going to say that there's an organicness that, that those shots particularly, but the cinematography in general has to it that keeps things feeling very realistic. I mean, if again, it, it might have to do with the dating of the, of the movie, but if this were a movie filmed in like 2000, we might have a slow pan of that bullet, you know, making its way to someone and we just kind of watch it. 
Whereas we don't have that here. We have a, we have, it's very, this is what you would see if you were sitting in the forest watching this go down. Uh, not documentary-esque necessarily, but very much a, a grounded, organic, realistic depiction of what a scene like this would be. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And the um, the other moment that also gives me chills uh, with him is when he's helping the colonists make their mis- make their escape. Uh, and they're running off into the woods and he's, he's sitting on top of the fort and he's playing sniper. And I I gotta tell you, man, if we ever do like a top five list on favorite snipers, it's gonna be hard not to have him up there, you know, (laughs) at like number one or two, but his namesake, you know, Hawkeye, the comic book character has got nothing, nothing, (laughs) nothing on him. So he's he's sitting up there and we see him just bam, 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 like sniper, just, you know, headshots all across these, these guys, these Indians running out, uh, to take on or to tackle, go after the the colonists. And the best part about it to me is, uh, is he, the fact that he's switching rifles, they're just tossing him rifles and, and, and quickly. And he's just boom, boom, bam, boom, boom, bam, moving from rifle to rifle because they only have like what, one or two shots in them, I think. Right. Um, cause they've got to be packed again. And it's just an incredible, incredible scene. Um, that really, you know, shows you why he has that nickname of long rifle. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and, and so, and, and it's thematically important. Like there's a, there's a reason for it. I mean, it needs mm-hmm. to happen. It's, it's him supporting that cause, but the way it's shot just stands out to me. Uh, oh, for sure. And then, like I said, in general, just the cinematography I love in this movie. Uh, it's relatively dark. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a very darkly filmed uh, movie, but I think that it makes sense. Um, it's okay <laughs> to, to have some darkness in reality. Uh, it's never obscures the characters to where I can't see them or understand what's going on. Uh, but there's some really beautiful moments. There's this one that sticks out in my mind of a reflective shot of a bridge as the, it's as the English are coming into the town for the first time. And it's not a long shot, but they're just cost crossing this bridge. And it's literally like a mirror mm-hmm. instead of water. Um, you can see everything reflected below as the carriage crosses. It's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous shot. Yeah. Um, but, and then everything about the landscapes, the forest, the mountains, just so well framed the cannon shots with the smoke mm. and explosions on the oh, walls yeah. of the fort. I, I actually read that that fort was, um, an actual scale model of that act of the oh, fort that wow. it was based on. They, they rebuilt it exactly in the exact way that that Ford existed, which is a pretty awesome thing too. Yeah. I think one of my favorite shots was just as they were coming over the ridge to the fort, you know, Hawkeye and, and, um, you know, Cora, Alice and, and, and those guys, and they see, uh, they see darkness. And, but the only time they see the fort is when it's being lit up by cannon fire and, and all that smoke. And it's just, you, the, camera just stays there for what feels like two or three minutes. I mean, I know it's not that long, but it's, I I feel like it's meant to just show us, look at what's happening. I mean, it's a beautiful shot. I mean, I, I, it's almost like, you know, lightning and you know, that kind of thing where you see, you know, lightning lighting up the sky, you know, (laughs) behind trees and stuff. But we're getting so much in that moment of there's chaos and of course, it's intertwined with close-up shots of people running back and forth and cannons firing and stuff. And so, if I had one little quip with that, I would say I would love for it to just to stay on that for 
longer than it did because those were the those were the moments in that particular scene where I felt um, a sense of like almost defeat. I was like, what is going on here? But of course we needed those close-ups to say what's actually going on here. And um, I don't know if the camera ever goes back and, and frames the, uh, the, the faces of the, of the cast or anything. But I mean, if it did, it would definitely accent just the depravity and some of the suffering that I feel like is, is happening in that, in that moment with the, with the fort being just sort of bombarded. Oh, for sure. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's brutal. I mean, it's, it's a very real feeling of mm-hmm. war and the way that it, it was handled, you know, mm-hmm. in this time period. Uh, so the last thing I want to make sure we talk about is the score and we can just briefly mm-hmm. hit on this. Um, but like I told you, I drove around in my car when I was a teenager listening to this constantly, just, man, it, it, it's such a swelling, emotional, emotionally riveting piece. Um, the the only other one that I can remember from my childhood that that affected me as greatly would be um, the shot or the score that of, of coming upon Island Dublar in Jurassic Park that mm, that opening yeah. main theme there. Um, so Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman are the mm-hmm. ones who did the score. I'm not super familiar with them from any other thing that they've done. So. Uh, they did win the Oscar for sound mixing for this film, but they didn't, but this film did win the Oscar for sound mixing, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I couldn't believe that that was the only thing it won, but so be it. Um, (laughs) but yeah, man, I mean, honestly, from, from the opening opening moments, it it starts with that drum and those war drums. And it just goes and swells into that main theme that da, 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 da. and like you can't mm-hmm. not feel your body react to that and that's that's incredible it is incredible when you have a physical reaction to music in a movie that is for sure i did some additional research and um cuz i cuz i love the soundtrack too I popped it in the, I think I believe the next day um, after I watched this and just listened to it on its own. And I, I love a good soundtrack that can be listened to, you know, without the movie that it can, it can separate itself. I mean, there's value to both. Obviously there, there are soundtracks that I listen to. I go, ah, I remember when that happened. And what you meant when you mentioned the uh, Jurassic Park soundtrack, the, the Isla Nublar theme, it captures those moments. But I, I I listen to the soundtrack and go, where have I heard that style before? And of course, I now remember from one of my favorite soundtracks growing up, Gettysburg. <laughs> and Randy Edelman composed that score as well. Lots of, I mean, it's, it's a Civil War piece, a Civil War movie, so there's a lot of drums in that, a lot of snares, a lot of marching. And there's this kind of, kind of soft-spoken epicness that comes with each piece of music that you can find in both The Last of the Mohicans and Gettysburg. And I remember having that same feeling when I watched, when I listened to both that, gosh, it just, it's powerful. It's powerful music. It's not filler. It's not, um, and, and, and the thing is, is it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily like when we have these battle sequences, at least early on, particularly um, that first uh, that first attack. I don't know that I remember any kind of like, dun, 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 you know, nothing that's going to accent. It was just 
it was almost absent, but it was there when it needed to be. And that theme continuing to echo in different parts of the movie, um, it's very smart composing, very smart mixing into, into the movie. And I think, uh, Randy Edelman's just a genius. I love, I love the things that I've heard him, him do. And, you know, Gettysburg is, is right up there with, with, uh, with last the Mohicans for me. Nice. I love you mentioned that um, lack of score at times being an important aspect of a good one. And I noted that as well, specifically during the ambush, second ambush that the Huron uh, do on the English. It's after the English have been let go by the French. And we were talking about how, you know, Magua has said he's going to go just destroy the entire line. And there's a complete stillness and silence before that war party party attacks. And all of a sudden you just start hearing them yelling from the trees <laughs> and, and that's it. There's no music behind it. There's just yeah. this, this awful yell. Um, and then all of a sudden out they pour from all sides, just coming down onto this, uh, col- this, uh, formation, and just totally just destroying them all for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lack, it's knowing when and when not to use it and not overusing yeah. it so that when you do use it and when you do hit those beats with that mo- music, it's more impactful because we haven't been overly saturated by it. Absolutely. And I think when you do that, I think we mentioned that there's, there are some composers that use music constantly but it's not distracting. It elevates the scene, but to a point where you don't necessarily notice it, but without it, it would feel a little weird. And I think this does something uniquely different and at the same time just as valuable in that it, it, it's kind of like a less is more approach. Exactly what you said, that when it is added, we know something's either coming or we know something's about to happen or something is, is happening and we're kind of connected emotional, emotion, emotionally with that. So I think that uh, both those guys did a fantastic job in being able to uh, have a, a light touch to this to this film and using their their score the way they did. So speaking of score, um, how about we move into our connecting point? I would love that. Um, the one thing that we have not talked about yet in this film is the ending, and there's a reason for that. That is because both Patrick and I agree that the entire ending of this movie is really what has to be the connecting point. And when we talk about the ending, we're talking about roughly the last 10 minutes. Essentially, everything from them, the Mohicans, coming upon the Huron camp. So we set the stage. We've we've rushed away. We've run from Magua. Um, we've hid in the waterfall beautiful shots by the way in cinematography great moment where alice almost kills herself but doesn't um and then a very heartbreaking moment where nathaniel tells cora like i've got to leave you i i have mm. to he, he trusts and in, in, he has to he tr- believes that she's too important that magua won't kill them and he's right but breaks my heart every time to, to see him say i'm gonna leave you now and mm-hmm. run away i mean that is super scary how can how you could do that? But he does, and of course he's right. Um, he tracks them. They get to the Huron camp, and in he walks. Right, and th- from that moment on, it is just one of the best sequences of any film I've ever seen. 
is is what I'm going to say. I don't I don't want to put a number on it, but it's as good as any specific sequence of a movie, specifically an ending that I've ever seen in a movie before. Um, he walks in and he's getting slashed. He just the Huron are just like running up to him and just slashing his chest with knives. Um, it's 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 incredible. Um, and and so to tie into that music piece right here once we get through the Huron camp section of this ending and we're on the run again, leading up to the, the very, the very end of the movie, that's when the score hits again. And mm-hmm. it's called, the track is called promontory. And this is the, the one that I listen to the most. And it's just this building, 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 swelling score. And it's, Oh man, it, it, it fits everything so perfectly, but let's talk about the ending. Um, let's do this differently. Um, let's not go all, let's not do this. Like one, one, I talk, then you talk like we normally do with connecting point. Let's just do it normal, <laughs> normal style. Like we would during okay. the, during the show. But, okay. um, so right off the you know bat, he's, he's there and they're, they're discussing things with this Huron leader. And clearly the Huron leader doesn't really know what Magua has been up to. <laughs> That's one thing that kind of stuck out to me is, Magua's having to explain himself. Um, and uh, I love that the Huron leader calls Nathaniel long rifle, mm-hmm. which you pointed out is, is for various obvious reasons. Um, but they, they have this, this big debate and the Huron leader shows us this wisdom, honestly, of, of a town elder uh, you know, maybe we don't agree with his decision. He says, you know, that person can burn at the stake. <laughs> you know, that person can die and you it's can so nonchalant. Like, yeah, put her on the stake. But he, you know, but he has reasons for everything, right? Sure. He, he sure, does. Sure. And he's trying to, he's trying to fulfill this concept of making peace while still paying debts. Um, and he tells, he tells Nathaniel, he says, uh, go in peace. I think he says, um, and so, and then we hit, and then from this, this moment on uh, is when it wrecks me and I'm in tears the entire rest of the film, Patrick. Um, when Nathaniel looks to Duncan and he, they've, they've decided that Cora is going to burn on the stake and Nathaniel's like, tell him, tell him to take me instead. Tell him to take me instead. And Duncan says something and the look that he gives Duncan when he looks at him. He's like, tell him, did you, did you tell him? And then you just see Duncan grabbed by the mm-hmm. Huron. And it's that, yeah. it's that realization. And I get emotional just talking about it, honestly, because the, the look on Nathaniel's face, I mean, this is the guy he's had a rivalry with the entire movie. <laughs> these, these guys don't get along. They don't agree with the way that each other does things. And they, and frankly, they are falling for the love with the same woman as well. So mm-hmm. you've got that on top of it. But what we have here is we have, this redemptive moment for Duncan where it's all been about him up until now where he's, he's wanted to marry Cora and he's felt that he had a right. He's felt entitled to it. And what this moment does for me is it puts him in a different light because I see a man who was never necessarily evil or bad. Maybe more. He's just, a product of the culture that he was brought up in. Like he was brought up as an English officer. 
This is what he knows. This is how he believes he's supposed to act. And in this mm-hmm. moment, he does something selfless. And it's just incredible. Um, you know, from there on out. Yeah. We, I think that that scene, when you couple it with the, um, I guess it's the scene where he and Cora are having a meal, like out in the middle of a field, which is just awkward. I don't know. I, I, it's like, who, who has a picnic like two miles away from everything, right? In a field. Um, but he's, you know, trying to convince her to marry him. And he, he, he brings up this thing, this idea of, you know, we can live in luxury. We can have these things. This is, you know, this is the life I can give you. And, you know, that paints a picture of us going, Duncan, you're, you're shoving this. You, you just care too much about like first world stuff. (laughs) And it makes us really kind of look at, (laughs) look at Hawkeye and go, yeah, he's a lot better Uh (laughs) because, and I think that's what makes this payoff so much, so good, so much better than what we would expect is that it's not just that he's making a sacrifice, but it's that we know that about him before and we've seen a heart change. And when you you combine that with him, you see him getting burned and just suffering. And you see Hawkeye from a distance shoot him. And you see the look on Hawkeye's face. Like, he didn't feel good about that at all. No, it was a mercy knew, killing. It was a mercy killing. And I... <laughs> I had to, you know, I had to put my dog to sleep this last week and I'm not going to call that a mercy killing, but I, I, I felt, I feel a little bit of that, this idea of saying, um, man, I didn't want to have to let you go. You've been with me for so long. This is our oldest dog, but at the same time you were suffering and I had to, I had to let you go. It had to be a choice that I had to make. Um, again, you know, it's a dog, you know, it's not like losing a person, but in that same vein, having to make that choice you saw you saw genuineness again with hawkeye in what he did even though the action looked terrible we knew the the worst of that would be seeing duncan suffer the way he did so um man that that gripped me too when i saw that i was like oh man uh, i just it, it broke my heart it broke my heart Yep, me too. And that's and that's that moment I was talking about earlier where his dad just throws him the rifle. Yeah. Again, no exposition, no, hey, how, how about we have a conversation? You know, hey, dad, do you think I should shoot him? Maybe I should shoot him. Do you think it would be the right thing to do? No, it's it's immediate action. And we see this from Nathaniel the whole movie. We see immediate action. We don't see hesitation. Um, and so I, I start crying every time right there, and I don't really stop. Uh, because it's just epicness all the way through the end of this film. Um, again, running a theme. We start the movie with people running, and we're going to end it with them running. They are they start running up this mountain. Um, and gosh, man, gosh, is it is it beautifully shot? And of course, first thing we come to is we get Uncas and Magua going at it, and mm-hmm. uh, and pretty quickly Uncas gets stabbed, and you get this incredible shot of just him realizing that's it. Like before they get to the ground and wrestle, you know that he has understood that he's not going to make it. He just kind of grabs his side and he looks up and you know, he, he can, he can tell he's going to go out fighting, but he, he knows that he's done. And so then they're, they're wrestling 
And of course, um, you know, he gets killed and, uh, and then pushed off the side and just, uh, Oh, you want to talk about it? Disrespectful to a body. He just gets, mm. just literally gets kicked off the side. And I'm just, I'm getting so angry at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, and then Alice kills herself, of right. course, which, um, you know, some people might say that Alice is a weak character. Uh, I think she epitomizes uh, a character that would exist in this world. Um, mm. The head in the clouds, head in the sand. Like, I don't want to believe what's going on around me. I don't understand this. I'm, I've been sheltered my entire life. I don't get it. Um, all I see is this death and this killing and n- unnecessary reasons. And, and the one guy that has tried to show me that he loves kids and that he's tender and caring is murdered right before my eyes. Like I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't, I can't, I can't go on and live in this world anymore. Um, right. I don't think it had anything to do with her fearing for her life. I think her, her killing herself was about, I just don't want to be a part of a world that, that exists like this. And that's what makes it yeah. so tragic. And the expression on her face was not one of fear. It wasn't one no, of no. desperate. I mean, it was it was really this serious, like, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm confident in that. And that's what I think is really interesting, is that the argument that she's a weak character, I think, is canceled out by that moment by saying, I am choosing to do this. For the first time, she's actually making a choice to embrace. Granted, it's a terrible choice. I mean, well, considering the con- the, the alternative is probably not. But it... It's it's her for the first time making the choice for herself because I feel like for most of the movie we see her tagging along with her sister and going along with whatever it is to kind of get to from point A to point B to point C and seeing this as disheartening as it is, you know, she's saying you and I love the fact that she, you know, she, the shot with Mugwa holding his hand out. I love the fact that she just killed herself. You know, in the scene, not that she actually killed herself, but I love the fact that she made a choice to say, no, it's not worth this. There's a, I don't want to say there's a better life. This sounds really crappy for me to say this, but I just think that her decision was more confident by, by killing herself than it was to stay with him because it showed that she was stronger than him Yeah, in that moment. Yeah. It was agency um, too. And, and yeah. people would look at this and be like, oh, you just killed your female characters. No, she had agency. She made mm-hmm. a choice. Of right. her own decision, she wasn't going to be controlled and told what to do and 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 forced to live in this world. She was going to go out on her own terms, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, we we end with um, Papa catching up to Magua and uh, giving him just the the awesome awesome um, slash fest. Yes, um, <laughs> and. It's, it's this, there's a moment where he's, once he's hit him the first time, right? He's, he's hit him on the shoulders. And I mean, first of all, that weapon, by the way, I want to mention is real. Um, it is called a gunstock war club. And this thing really exists. It is a sword that was created out of old gunstocks. Can you get that at Amazon? Um, I don't think you can get it now. (laughs) <laughs> but this was a very real weapon, and and that makes it all the more brutal to me, uh, because yeah. that was a that was a oh man I I will always remember that and think of that sword when I see yeah. this. But he's, is it blue? He, is it is it blue? Is it a blue? I remember it being a color. Did mm, it have a color to it? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, okay. 
Which is maybe a weird adjust the tint on your television. But um, uh, no, <laughs> so he's he he <laughs> he wrecks Magua a couple times, and you know Magua's just kind of hanging there now, clearly without the ability to fight back. And you know you're just waiting for the killing blow, and there's just this slightest head shake that he gives him. He looks at Magua and he just he just kind of barely shakes his head. And it's like this this deep not not only not only anger because he's just lost his son but regret and disappointment that Magua as a fellow uh, Native American could could be this this violent and this this evil um, toward his own type of people um, just to become like the French I don't know it's just a very very powerful shake of the head for me um, and then of course the epicness of the swinging um, slash into the gullet and then killing him. Um, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it's I like, I, I, I like that moment. I think the combination of the, as much as you're telling me this is a real weapon, it felt like very much like a Klingon weapon. And I think it had to do with the combination of the weapon itself and his kind of like ponytail or whatever. And when he did the spin, I think, for, I mean, I know why he did it. You know, it, you, it, it, momentum, you know, and being able to just to get right into his gut, but it, it felt somewhat overly dramatic for me. Mm. Didn't, didn't take me out of the scene by any means, but you've got all these little, just simple, like realistic, you know, gunshots and slash and whatever. And then you get this guy who's like, I'm going to spin and just get you right in the gullet. Uh, didn't take away from the epicness, just felt a little unrealistic to me, but I, I liked it nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, me too. But of course, this film ends with the wonderful brief <laughs> speech uh, with Chingachuk saying, "For they are all there but one, I, Chingachuk, last of the Mohicans." And it just gives me chills every time because it's always in that moment that I remember, <clears throat> even upon multiple viewings, the story is being told through the eyes of Hawkeye and Daniel Day Lewis, the stars' character. And so you right. really connect there and it's like this, it's like this complete change of direction when you realize, man, it's not about him. It's about his dad and his brother. Um, and so I get chills because yeah, he is the last, he's the last of a line and it's never been about Hawkeye. And, and in hindsight, I noticed that whole ending sequence, man, from the moment where he shoots Duncan, none of it is about him. None of it. It's, Magua versus Uncas, and then it's mm-hmm. Chingachuk versus Magua. Like he doesn't play into this at all. He he plays sniper on the way mm-hmm. up the mountain a couple times, but like that's it. He's not the guy going in with the final fight, and that's just amazing to me mm-hmm. that uh, we could we could have such a, a stud actor who's the main character of a film and him not even to play into that final ten minutes like that. And so it it's amazing. Um, I love the ending so much, so much. I do too, man. And you're right that at that ending, and that last line, that I guess we can call it a reveal. It it speaks to the subtlety of the film, and the little nuances that help push the story forward, round out the characters, and I think it's the big surprise among many surprises in the film that we we have you know we've talked about tonight, and I think that's what makes it a film that is, you know, it stands even today, not only the social impact that 
it speaks to, but also and, and the characters and the actors that you know that the performance by Daniel Day Lewis, but just the the fact that it's not heavy handed. This movie could have been heavy handed. It really could have. And you know, for whatever reason, man decided, you know what? No, we're gonna we're gonna let the characters tell the story. And I, I can only imagine just him sitting in the writers' room and going, "It's really about dad. How can we make this about dad without, you know, making this so heavy?" And I think they they nailed it with this one. Well, I'm glad you think so. Uh, makes me happy. And uh, again, I'm glad that the listeners you voted for this one. Uh, those of you, the listener vote took place uh, from those in our Facebook group. Um, that's how we handled this one, and also the one that is currently up for voting. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate uh, you choosing great movies for us to get to cover and talk about. Patrick, I think that's it. So let's go ahead and, and wrap this one up. You got anything to say on your way out? Uh, just on where to find me. If you want to continue this discussion or discussions of anything of that sort, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I am on Twitter. I'm at Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can find me at those three you can also find out more about me uh, on my website, thisispatch.com. Uh, you can find out more about the show. Check out past episodes at feelandfilm.com. We have actually just migrated over to a new host. So if you find that your your website link is not working, go ahead and clear your cache or just type in http colon forward slash forward slash feelandfilm.com uh, without the S. So if you get a issue with that that's kind of the troubleshooting that uh, that i can give you there um we're excited about the the listener pick coming up for this for this next month it is live as we mentioned and uh i it seems like it changes every day whatever the top pick is so you know it could be you know it could be what you know gattaca this you know today and it could be you know superman 3 tomorrow i, I doubt it's going to be the latter i kind of wish it were but that's just me <laughs> Thankfully, it's not, but to be <laughs> sure, you all can join the Facebook group and get your votes in. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can find me all over the web at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on all the big social media sites. Um, our Feelers Choice Awards is actually wrapping up. By the time this episode hits, voting will pretty much be closed for that. We thank, thank everybody that has gotten their votes in. I'm excited, too. And we're pumped to release our own first ever Feelers Choice Awards alongside their Oscar counterparts during the show next week. So make sure you're following us on social media and tuning in while you watch the Oscars to find out who gets the Feelers Choice Awards. Um, next week, as I mentioned, also we'll be doing a Manchester by the Sea minisode. So you can look forward to that in addition to our next main episode, which will be a day later than normal uh, for a release schedule because we're going to do an Oscar recap episode and talk about the Oscars and the Feelers Choice Awards both, which should be a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's it we've had for this time. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode and are tuning in for future ones. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.